0: So hello, everyone. Welcome back from Thanksgiving break. I've missed you all so much. And so it's so good to be back at Chi Alpha. Um, if you're new tonight, I just want to thank you so much for coming and trying it out. Um, and I'd love the chance to meet you after service if I haven't before. So if you haven't met me, my name's Amber Enos, and I'm on staff here with Chi Alpha. So it's so good to be with you guys tonight. And so I know that these next couple weeks before finals are totally crazy for students. So I just want to say, if you're stressing out about your presentations and final projects and all that stuff, I want to invite you to just take all that stress and anxiety and just toss it aside just for the next hour and enjoy God's presence. All right, we're going to have a good night. So tonight we are continuing our sermon series over chapter one of the Gospel of John entitled, Here Comes the Light. Last week, Pastor Derek started us off um, by examining the light of the world that is Jesus and how when the light enters our life, we are forever changed. And so tonight, we're going to be looking at John chapter 1, verses 14 through 18. So you can go ahead and turn there, but it'll be on the screen as well. It says, The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is, is, is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. So tonight we're going to be starting off with our main idea. So the main idea of tonight is God pursues us with grace and truth. God pursues us with grace and truth. I'm going to pray us in. Lord, I thank you so much for tonight, and God, I thank you for each individual who you've brought here tonight, and Lord, I just pray that you'd be speaking through me, and I pray that you would just open the heart of every person here to what you have for us tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Awesome. So have you ever had an impression of someone, like what someone was like, and then when you actually got to know them, it was totally different? It's definitely happened to me but i remember one specific time where i was the person who gave one certain impression but then in reality i was totally different so let's backtrack to 2019. i had just graduated from high school that summer and i was going to freshman orientation here at uni and back then we had the student org fair at freshman orientation and so at the org fair i was walking around looking for groups to join and then i saw the chi alpha booth and walked over because I actually knew what Chi Alpha was because I grew up going to this youth conference where they shared about it. And so I go up to the booth and I talk to Pastor Derek there and I share that I grew up in the Assemblies of God and I already knew about it because the Assemblies of God is the same denomination as Chi Alpha. And so I maybe even make myself sound way more Christian than I really was because in reality I hadn't really been to church in a few years at that point at least consistently. And so I ended up filling out a connect card And at the time, I didn't know this, but I later learned that when we met, Derek had thought that I was like this rock star Christian, that I was just like on fire for Jesus and ready to go, but that wasn't the case. And so later on, the small group leader that my Connect card went to was Casey Griffin. Love her. (laughs) And so maybe a day or two after I moved into the dorms, I get this text from Casey to hang out and grab lunch. And now I imagine that when Casey got this Connect card, that Derek had probably like really hyped it up and was like, hey, this girl like already knows what Chi Alpha is, and like she grew up in the assemblies of God, like she's probably like on fire for Jesus, and so Casey was probably like super pumped, like, yeah, we're gonna like, I'm gonna get her plugged into Chi Alpha, we're gonna get to share our testimonies, our stories about Jesus, and so I'm so excited. Well, she picked me up from my dorm, and I'm not gonna lie, it was probably really painful for her because I was terribly shy and she 100% had to carry the entire conversation. And over lunch, she asked me her classic question, so what's your life story? You were born and then what happened? I literally did not know what to say. I probably was just staring at her in confusion like, I don't have a story. (laughs) Like, I, I grew up in a small town and I did a lot of activities in high school And now I'm here, (laughs) and that's pretty much it. And later on, Casey eventually told me that because I was so quiet, she thought that I did not wanna talk to her at all and that I was like dying to leave. But that couldn't be further from the truth. I was just so shy and like I hadn't learned how to think deeply about my life story yet. But don't worry, I ended up joining her small group and we became really good friends after that. But I had given the impression and seemed like this perfect church kid But in reality, I had a lot of issues. So maybe you've been there, and maybe you've had this impression of someone, and then it turned out to be totally wrong. Someone that I used to have a wrong impression of was God. Like I mentioned before, I grew up in church, but I fell out of going consistently when I was in high school. And so in my childhood, I formed this theology, or this way of thinking about God, that went, God loves you. And he has a set of rules for your life to follow if you want to live a good life. But God always seemed really far off to me. And so whenever I messed up and I didn't follow these rules for my life, I felt like a disappointment to him and like he was just mad at me. And so I felt a lot of this guilt and shame and frustration because I was trying to please him, but I didn't really know how. It was all rules and no relationship. But this impression of God was not the real God. A.W. Tozer once said that what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. That goes to say that what comes into your mind when you hear the word God will set the trajectory of who you become because we all become like who our vision of God is for better or for worse. So who is God to you? There's about like 150 people in here, that means when I say the word God, there's probably 150 different perspectives of God that pop into people's minds. So maybe some of us in here grew up in this really conservative and religious household, and your version of God is this authoritative tyrant in the sky who's just watching and waiting for you just to mess up, and whose main emotions towards you are anger and disappointment. Some of us, maybe those of us that don't consider themselves Christians, you see God as someone who created the world and then disappeared. They're the type of people to ask questions like, if God is a God of love, then why are there starving kids in Africa? They view God as far off and apathetic, not really caring what happens to us. Other of us maybe grew up viewing God as this cosmic genie and life coach. He's there to answer your every request and maximize your life. This God aligns with your beliefs, your political party, and never disagrees with you. The thing about all these gods is that none of them are the real God. None of them are real because none of them are who God reveals himself to be. To be honest, whatever we think about God will typically say more about us than it will about God. Our childhood, family, culture, and experiences all play a critical part in shaping our view of God. So where do we find the real God? That's our longing, to know the real, authentic God. And that means the question to ask is not, who is God to you, but who is God? Who is this light that has come into the world? Where can we find an unbiased, unfiltered perspective on the God of the universe? And that's where our text for the night comes in. So let's pick up in verse 14. It says, The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. So this whole message could rest on this one verse. Our whole religion rests on this one verse. That's how pivotal this is. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Last week, Derek explained that the Word is Jesus, the Word is God. Verse 14 makes a statement that God became flesh or human and made his dwelling among us. So God became man. Without ceasing to be God. That's a crazy statement. That's by far the craziest statement John has made yet. Let me explain. So, John would have had mainly a Greek and Jewish audience. And these two groups of people had two very different views of God. The Greeks generally had a very low view of God. So, they believed in all those ancient Greek gods like Zeus and Hercules. And those guys were basically just supermen. So just like a step above us normal humans in power. So to them, John is saying that the word, the God who created the heavens and the earth, someone totally other, became flesh. He wanted to highlight Jesus' divinity to the Greeks to show that the word, Jesus, was far greater than just skin and bones. Jesus is fully God. But the Jews, on the other hand, they had a very high yet limited view of God. They needed to hear that the word became flesh. For John to say that their great set-apart God would become as lowly as a human was offensive. To the Jewish audience, John wanted to highlight Jesus' humanity. God became flesh. Jesus was also fully human. So like us, the Greeks and the Jews had their own impression of who the God of the universe was. And God wanted to show them personally who he is. And what better way to do that than to leave heaven and show us himself in the flesh. So God the word became flesh. We call this the incarnation. This is who Jesus is. Jesus is not just this relative of God or a prophet or just a really nice guy. Jesus is God incarnate. Jesus is God in the flesh. And maybe some of you, when you think about the God of the Old Testament, he seems different to you. I know some people view that the God of the Old Testament is maybe more harsh than Jesus or less loving than Jesus. But that couldn't be further from the truth. You see, Jesus is the same God as Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but in human form. And this is why Jesus is so essential. Through Jesus, we receive a revelation of who God is, one that's not based on our culture or beliefs or experiences or what people say on the street or what generational consensus there is, but based on who God actually is. Jesus came in the flesh to make God known. If you want to know who the true God of the universe is, you must look at Jesus. So verse 14 continues to say, God became flesh and made his dwelling among us. The English translation doesn't fully convey the meaning of what's happening here. So made his dwelling more literally translates to say that Jesus P- pitched a tent or tab- tabernacled among us. So let's take a step back. Humans were, were originally exist, or created to exist in the garden in this place of perfect fellowship with God. It was a perfect, holy, and sinless place. But then sin entered the world and kind of messed that up. So fellowship and closeness with God was lost because we were no longer holy. But throughout the Old Testament, we see God chasing after his people and trying to bring redemption to them. So first, he makes a covenant with Abraham to make a nation out of him, which would later be called the Israelites, who would be God's people. But after the Israelites became enslaved by the Egyptians, God once again intervened, bringing redemption to his people. He used Moses to free the Israelites from Pharaoh. And so then later on, after God miraculously freed the Israelites from captivity and they're wandering in the desert, searching for the promised land, God gave them instructions to build a structure called the Tabernacle. And the Tabernacle was this portable tent that the Israelites were to travel with, and it was a symbol for God's presence with his people. And now, not just anyone was allowed to enter in, but there were very specific instructions as to how it should be built because it was sacred and holy. After all, it did represent God's presence in the world. But like much of the Old Testament, the tabernacle was pointing forward to something greater. And so when the Israelites finally got to the promised land, they had this duty of building a temple for the Lord. The tabernacle had been portable, but the temple was meant to be permanent. But the overarching purpose of them was still the same. It was where God met with his people. And it was his presence in the world. You see, God wanted to be with his people, and that was why he asked them to make the temple. And the temple was very important in the Old Testament, but once again, it was only pointing forward to an even greater temple yet to come. So I have an example for you. So think of your favorite band or singer. You probably listened to them on your phone through Spotify or Apple Music if you're like really bougie, <laughs> and it's good, you're listening to it and it's, it's like the singers there, but it's not quite the same. So listening to your favorite band on your portable phone is like the Tabernacle. You get the experience of hearing your favorite singer, but it's only a substitute until you get to see them live in performance. So my husband Jacob and I, we love the band The 1975. And this fall, we bought tickets to see them in Milwaukee. And so the month leading up to the concert, naturally, they were all that we really wanted to listen to. But Jacob is particularly nerdy with this stuff. And so he would go on YouTube, and he would just watch recordings of their concerts. Like, in his free time, that's all he wanted to do. And now I'm a fan, but I thought that was a bit much. (laughs) And so the day of the concert finally came. And there's probably about 15,000 people pouring into Pfizer Stadium to see the 1975 in the flesh. And so if you've ever been to a concert, you know that getting to experience the music in real life and hearing your favorite artists perform in person is so much better, right? Well, the YouTube recordings of their concerts had nothing on seeing the concert in person. The sound, the lights, the energy in the room, that could not be replicated in a recording. And so that's why we all love concerts so much, because it's so much better in person. So just like listening to an artist on Spotify is a placeholder until we can see them in person, the tabernacle and the temple in the Old Testament were placeholders until God himself came to earth. Because of that, we now get to meet God in the flesh. Because of Jesus, we were given access to experience God in person. And that's so much better. Here's why. After Jesus had told his disciples that he was going to die on the cross, he told them this, but very truly I tell you, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. So Jesus coming in the flesh meant that he would pay for our sins on the cross, giving us access to the Holy Spirit, who is also known as the advocate or our helper, The Holy Spirit's our helper because it is through him that we receive God's guidance and direction. He gives us the strength to conquer sins, and he helps us look more like Jesus. But Jesus had to come and pay for our sins to unlock this greater access to God in our lives. That is the significance of John 1.14. Jesus tabernacled among us. Jesus became the tabernacle. He is the greater temple because Jesus is God with his people. Instead of a tent or a building, God himself came and was with us. And now we can experience the presence of God on a daily basis through the Holy Spirit. When we worship, we can encounter the living God. When we pray, we can meet with God, all because God became flesh. But it doesn't end there. In the Old Testament temple... The priests would offer sacrifices to be made right with God. But instead, Jesus became the sacrifice, and his sacrifice was final, once and for all. Our sins are paid for. Jesus became flesh to be- fulfill the prophecy given by Isaiah that says, Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and will call him Emmanuel. What does the name Emmanuel mean? Emmanuel is a Hebrew word that stands for God with us. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. So the word made his dwelling among us. God himself pitched a tent among us in Jesus. And Jesus became the tabernacle and he became the way that we meet with God. This has been God's plan from the very beginning restore the connection that we had with him in the garden. From the beginning, God has been pursuing us. He loves us so much that he was willing to leave heaven to chase after you and me, even when it came to great cost to him. God will do anything to come after us. It's kind of like this. Picture a young man pursuing a girl that he's interested in. Let's say he meets her through Chi Alpha, and as he gets to know her, he starts to like her more and more. And so he decides, I'm going to chase after this one. And then he finds out that she has never been to one of his favorite coffee shops. And so he sees this perfect opportunity to ask her out on a date. So he builds up the courage and says, you've never had Sidecar? Well, maybe we could go there sometime. But then she gets nervous and says, oh, um... Thank you for asking, but I'm not sure I'm ready to date yet. (laughs) And so then the guy's a little bit disappointed in the rejection, but he doesn't give up. He's chasing after her. And so he keeps finding ways to be near her and ways to pursue her, like hosting prayer nights at his house. Or he tries to impress her by playing guitar and writing her poems, no matter how embarrassing. He'll do anything to go after her. He is committed to the pursuit And then after some time, he asks her out on that coffee date again, and she actually says yes. This is totally not the real story of how Jake and I started dating. (laughs) Now, Jesus isn't as embarrassing about it, but he is just as committed to pursuing us. Even after we reject him, Jesus still pursues us so that we can have a relationship with him. In his pursuit of us, we get to see the glory of God. We don't serve a God who's on a hill far away, but we serve a God who gets in the trenches with us. Because Jesus became human, he can sympathize with us. He's experienced the same things we have. He has compassion for us and understands what we go through. On earth, he faced temptation just like us. He faced hate. He felt the pain of a loved one dying. He faced the same battles that we do. And through it all, Jesus shows us that it's possible to live a godly life. He shows us how to live by living a life on earth himself. And as Jesus pursues us, he showers us with something that we so desperately need grace. Verses 16 through 17 say, Out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. We have all received grace in place of grace already given. Grace upon grace. Here John is telling us that Jesus has brought us a never-ending supply of grace. Literally it means grace instead of grace. It means as grace is used, it's replaced by more grace. God's grace to his people is continuous and will never run out. And that is who God reveals himself to be, grace upon grace. Now, I know that there's some people in here tonight that don't believe that God's grace is truly inexhaustible. It is hard to fathom. But we humans struggle to grasp this idea of limitless grace because oftentimes we do not give limitless grace and forgiveness. So maybe you have a hard time giving others grace when they mess up. Or maybe you struggle with judging others and you look at other people and think, well, at least I'm better than them. (laughs) Now this is a hard truth, but if you want to grow in giving others grace, you need to come to realize the depths of your own sin and mistakes. I know, doesn't that sound fun? (laughs) But until you fully realize the gravity of your sin, you will struggle to give others grace. Now let me give you an example from my life because I definitely also struggle with this. And this may seem silly, but it's an actual problem I have. So Jacob and I have snapshot with progressive. My worst mistake ever. And it's my mortal enemy. (laughs) It's this little device that you plug into your car that monitors your driving. And if you drive well, it can lower your car insurance rate. It sounds great, but if you do something wrong, like you brake too hard, it beeps at you, and it can possibly make your rate go up. Well, when we were signing up, I was pretty confident in my driving ability. Little did I know that this thing is the most touchy device on the planet. And since we've plugged it into my car, I went from being rated as a five-star driver to then a four-star driver, and then after it's collected, more and more beeps, I am a three-star driver. So that's sad for me. But here's the catch. Because I like to be a passenger princess, Jacob drives my car just about as much as I do, if not more, to be honest. And it does not matter how many times that thing had beeped at me that day. If Jacob's driving and it beeps at him, I just give him this look that says, how dare you? And I think that we all might be able to relate to moments like that. When we mess up, we have our reasons. I'm like, hey, when the snapshot beeped at me, it's because someone cut me off, or I was running late and I had to do what I had to do. We easily explain away our own sins while getting mad at others. Tim Keller once said that when we grasp that we are unworthy sinners saved by an infinitely costly grace, It destroys both our self-righteousness and our need to ridicule others. Mm. This doesn't mean that we need to feel condemned or sulk in our sin in order to give grace. But we have to remember that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If we want to learn to give grace to others like God does we have to come face to face with our own sins and shortcomings. And when you get to this place of knowing your own desperate need for God's grace, you won't be looking at others thinking about how you're better than them or about how they need to change and be fixed. You won't dwell on how they've wronged you or compare their holiness to your holiness. Instead, you'll look at others like how God looks at them. When they fall short, you'll forgive them. You'll love them through their imperfections. Only by learning to extend grace upon grace to others will you begin to fathom the grace upon grace that God has for you. Others of you here might not struggle as much with giving grace to others as much as you struggle to give it to yourself. When you sin and mess up, You picture God in heaven like, oh, not again. You see the gravity of your sin. But you're not seeing the gravity of the unlimited, freely given grace that God has for you. If you struggle to receive grace, you need to come face to face with Jesus. God himself came after you. Remember that God is pursuing you. God himself came to earth to defeat the sin that separated you from him just to be with you. Do you think that you're powerful enough to change that? Do you think that God would go through the trouble of dying on the cross if you were able to undo that with your sin? You can't and that's a good, good thing. Now listen closely because I think some people here need to let this sink in. God's grace will never run out on you. God's grace will never run out of you. And you don't need to feel ashamed or condemned or feel like you have to hide anything here because God has so much grace for you and we are going to be a place that extends grace to others. You just need to run into the loving arms of the Father because Jesus is grace upon grace. And he is waiting for you with unconditional love an unending grace, and we don't have to earn it. So going back to verse 17, it says, For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now the grace part makes sense. Jesus coming means our sins are paid for and we can be forgiven. But what does it mean that it says truth came through Jesus? Well, the law given to Moses in the Old Testament reflected the character of God in part, helping us live in truth. And it was an act of God's goodness because of that. But it was still law and commandments. It was still rigid and required perfection on our end. And it was impossible for us to live up to. This is another reason why Jesus became flesh, to not just tell us what the truth is, but live it out. And the word for truth here, used in verse 17 in the Greek, is aletheia, which the literal meaning of is the state of not being hidden, to be unconcealed. It closely resembles the English word reality. So Jesus is God out of hiding, so to speak. Jesus is God unconcealed. By reading the translation of verse 17 more literally, you would read it as grace and reality Came through Jesus Christ. So Jesus came in order to live a life that showed us the truth of God. He came to represent reality, to give us direction and truth for our life. Yes, He gives us grace, but He also teaches us what is right and wrong. He shows us how the world was designed to work through the way that He lived His life. To be honest, It's unnatural for our generation to want to let someone else define truth for us. From a young age, we've all been told things like, speak your truth, and you have to be true to yourself. But there is no your truth or my truth, because that's too fragile of a mindset to have. Because if your truth doesn't line up with my truth, then one of those is a lie. And having this mindset can cause friction in our relationship with God. Because we'll hear the truth from God, but then we'll think, well, I know better. And that's why Jesus had to come to show us the truth. He came to show us reality. And God is the only one qualified to define truth and reality because he is the only one wise enough. Now, some people might think that this sounds like the opposite of grace. That having to live by God's truth seems controlling. But reality is that Jesus showing us the truth is grace. So the incarnation is not law, but rather gospel. The incarnation is not law, but rather gospel. Through Jesus, we receive the truth that comes with the law, but by watching him live it out. Because through receiving the truth, we get to live a life of freedom. Now allow me to go on a little tangent here, and let's test something from our culture. So to start off, I think that we can all agree that truth is reality, and lies are unreality, right? So for example, Jesus claims that reality is this. The only good and safe place for us to express our sexual desires is in marriage. Well, something that our culture claims as reality is the belief that it is good to be able to have total sexual freedom with whoever and that marriage is not necessary for it. And this has become the general consensus our society has been moving towards since the sexual revolution began in the 1960s. Well, to see if this is reality, we must ask ourselves is, Following this cultural belief, making us better people, is it making us more loving people or even happier people? Let's see. Here is the actual reality shown through research. First, happiness levels have been in decline in the U.S. since, guess when, the 60s, or We could look at the chemicals released in our body during sex that are supposed to allow us to bond with another person. Research shows that the more sexual partners you have, the less capacity that your body has for intimacy. Another statistic shows that couples who live together before marriage are less likely to marry, and they're more likely to divorce if they do, and they often develop long-term trust issues. We could also talk about the fact that while sexual promiscuity is promoted, sexual abuse and sexual assault rates are getting worse, not better. So I could go on with more research, but I can also tell you from experience. I had this boyfriend in high school before I fully gave my life to Jesus, and I believed what the culture said. We crossed some sexual boundaries, and it only ended up making me feel worse. Instead of feeling fulfilled, I felt used. Culture told me that it would be freeing, but it wasn't freeing at all. Instead, it just left me with this baggage that I didn't want. Maybe you've been there too. But it doesn't have to be that way. This belief that our culture has has, does not seem to line up with reality. Instead of it being a good thing, it's actually damaging our society. So that belief is unreality, making it a lie. And it's a dangerous lie that has tricked most of our generation into believing it. And when you believe a lie, whether it's about your sexual desires or your identity or what is right or wrong, it enslaves you in the darkness. But then comes the light. The light of the world, Jesus Christ, has brought us truth and I promise you, if you live by his truth, you will be set free. You will no longer be trapped in the darkness. In John eight twelve, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The light of life. Jesus is the light of life, meaning that it's through him that you will experience real life. Jesus sets us free with the truth. Through him, by living the way that he did, you can experience fulfillment. If you accept his truth as the truth, you will live in the light. Lies enslave, but the truth will set you free. So we'll end by reading verse 18 from our text. Says, no one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, Jesus Christ, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. Now, it's true that we can't physically see God, but that doesn't mean that we can't find him. We don't have to wonder about the nature and personality of God because Jesus has declared it with both his teaching and his life. Jesus has revealed the God of the universe to us. And so the main idea tonight is God pursues us with grace and truth. God pursues us with grace and truth. You see, God left heaven to chase after you and me. That is the whole story of the Bible, is God seeking after his people. He became flesh in order to pursue you. He came in order to reveal his heart to you, to reveal his never-ending, unrelenting grace and to give you an opportunity to be set free with his truth. So maybe you came in here tonight with this certain impression of who God is. Maybe you relate to that example of God being this tyrant in the sky who just looks down on you, and just waits for you to mess up and is just angry at you. Or maybe you came in here tonight thinking that God is far off and he doesn't really care what you do with your life or what happens in the world. But whatever impression you have of God, he wants to set it right tonight. You see, God himself cared so much about you, about making himself known to you, that he left heaven, this place of paradise, to come to earth to live this perfect life and chase after you. You see, through Jesus, he lived the perfect life so that we don't have to. And he humbly submitted himself to death on a cross. Even, that came, even though that came to great cost to him, he was doing it to chase after you. And because of his sacrifice, we get to experience unending grace. Jesus is the best example of grace upon grace and uncompromising truth. Jesus is the light of the world and he's ready to set you free tonight. You see, we ultimately become like who we think God is. And so we need the right view. What could happen if each of us became a reflection of the true God? What would happen if we each became a reflection of grace and truth? Imagine what could happen and how people would look at Christians differently if we all extended the same grace upon grace to others that God has shown us. Imagine how many people could be set free from the darkness that this world puts us in if we were willing to show them the truth that Jesus has shown us. Imagine what could happen if we were dedicated to living lives of truth. How many people could be set free from their sins if we were willing just to show them grace and truth? by doing this, only by being committed to living in the light. That is how we will see people come to know God, by pursuing them with the grace and truth found in Jesus. Please stand with me. So tonight we have two ways to respond. First, if you're here tonight and you've never accepted this free gift of grace that God has for you, and you want to either dedicate your life to him for the first time or recommit, I want to give that opportunity to you. So with every head bowed and every eye closed, I'm going to count to three, and I'm going to ask you just to do the simple act of raising your hand as an outward sign to God to say that you're all in, that you're ready to take on this new life with King Jesus. So if that's you, on the count of three, raise your hand. One, two. I see those hands. Thank you. Let me pray for you. Jesus, I thank you for each individual in here tonight that has raised their hand and just wants to be a new creation in you, Lord, and wants to just give their life to you. Father, I pray that you'd reveal yourself to them. God, I pray that they would feel your unending grace and your uncompromising truth, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, the second way to respond tonight is I know that some of you in here maybe haven't felt this unending grace that God has or maybe you struggle to give it to others or receive it for yourself maybe others of us in here need to set aside the truth that we have for our lives and accept the truth that God has for our lives if either of those ring true for you I just want you to put your hands out in front of you like this as if you're receiving a gift and I'm going to pray for us Jesus, we know that you are ready to give us this gift of grace and truth. And Father, I just pray that each person would just be showered in it tonight, Lord. I pray that we would truly feel it, even if we know it already. God, I just pray that we could feel it. And Lord, I just pray that you'd help us be pursuing others, pursuing the kingdom of God with grace and truth as you've shown us, and help us make help make us new, Lord, and help us chase after you. In Jesus' name, we pray going to end with one more song of worship.